Does anyone know what this is? You've all played Monopoly, obviously. It's one of those games you either love or hate. Um, <laughs> is this real? Well, it's real Monopoly money. It's real paper. It's a real thing, but it's not real money. Today we're going to talk about the true Israel. And we'll come back to that little illustration shortly. I'm going to be as concise as I can because it's all about Jesus today and um, I want it to be clear and focused on him. Two weeks ago I said there were seven things called Israel. And you may have heard me say that. There's a person, Jacob, who was renamed Israel. There's his descendants, the children of Israel. There's a country called Israel. The country had a civil war and the top half was a new country, the divided nation of Israel. There's new Israel, which is the church, but I explained it's really the same thing continued. There's Jesus, which I said was the true Israel. And then, of course, there's a country in the world today which I believe is not mentioned in the Bible. But one of those was the true Israel, and that's what I want to show you today. And the true Israel is Jesus. <laughs> and uh, he's the whole reason we're here. And he's, it's everywhere in the Bible. We wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for this true Israel, if it wasn't for Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is start by going to the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Hosea is, um, I think, one of the great prophets of the Bible. And uh, mind you, the more you look into the prophets of the Bible, you, the more you think they are one of the great prophets of the Bible. So clearly they're all in there for a reason. But Hosea is a marvellous prophet who really heard the Lord speak. What I think is astounding is the name Hosea means salvation. The name Jesus means salvation. It's the same name. We have a book in the Bible, you could say, called Jesus. Actually, we have two books in the Bible you could say called Jesus because the book of Joshua is also salvation. So we've got two books in the Old Testament which could just as easily be translated into English as salvation or Jesus. So here we have this prophet who shares the same name with the Lord and in chapter 11 he wrote or said this, when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son but the more they were called the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, they burnt incense to images, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, it's another name for Israel, taking them by the arms, but they did not realise that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. So it's a prophecy about something historical that happened to the nation of Israel. They were um, an infant nation, They'd only just not long been a nation, only a few generations old. They were enslaved in Egypt, 
And Hosea is talking about that. And he says, when Israel was a child, in other words, when they were just a brand new baby nation, when they were just an infant, I loved him. I called him out of Egypt, rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But of course, they turned their back on God. They worshipped the Baals. And then in verse 4, God says, to them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. God cared for this little baby infant nation. So remember I said there were seven Israels. Which one do you think this is? <laughs> you, you know, when you read Israel in the Bible, what you should do is you should say to yourself, which Israel is being discussed? So I just mentioned all seven. Which one is it right here? Well, you look at that and you say, well, I think it's the, think it's the children of Israel. I think it's the descendants of Jacob. It's the, the people. I think it's number two. Now, some people might say, oh, you know, people might have different opinions. But I think it's number two. Jacob was a man. He got called Israel. His descendants went down to Egypt as slaves. They became a nation. But it's that, those descendants and kind of the early stages of that nation that's being talked about here. They were just a child and the Lord rescued them out of Egypt. Does that all seem pretty nailed down, you'd say? I think so. I, I think that is correct. But when we get to the Gospel of Matthew, we find the strangest thing. And so we're now going to go to Matthew chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 13 to 15. So Matthew, the evangelist, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, wrote the Gospel of Matthew, and he was talking about this time when Jesus was just a little baby and Herod found out that the king had been born. You know, the wise men came and, and let him know that the king, the Messiah, had been born, and Herod didn't like that idea and decided he was going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Remember that? And so Joseph has a dream. Joseph wakes up in the middle of the night and says, Mary, grab your things, grab the baby, we're going. And they all jumped on a camel. I don't know what they, how they left, but I assume they le leaped on a camel and they galloped out of there, <laughs> something like that. They all jumped into the Corolla and started it up and zoomed out of town. And um, in the middle of the night, they didn't have time to take all their possessions. It was, it was that urgent. You know, in the middle of the night, he has a dream and they just leave. So the life of Jesus is spared and they go and live in Egypt for a while. But then after a while, Joseph has another dream and it's safe now, you can come back. And so they come back. And Matthew is writing about all of that. It's something we often read at Christmas time as part of our Christmas stories. And then Matthew says this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew just quoted Hosea that we just read, and we all discussed which Israel it was that was being talked about, and we all said it was probably number two. <laughs> You know, in my list, I've got my list of seven, and it's, I think it's number two. But Matthew just quoted Hosea 
and said, it's Jesus. It's number five. Now, isn't that the strangest thing? Because when you read Hosea, it doesn't seem to be talking about the Messiah or Jesus at all. It's clearly talking about a they. They did this. They worshiped. It's clearly talking about this nation. But now Matthew is saying, he's quoting it to like say, oh, Jesus was in Egypt and he got he came back out of Egypt and you know, look, look what Hosea says. So I remember for years thinking, this is not a very good, this is not a very convincing prophecy from Hosea to use. It's like it's like Hosea's kind of like grappling at straws to kind of find something to prove that Jesus is, you know, it's not that. You've got to think about it the way I'm now trying to explain it to you. It's not a prophecy in Hosea predicting that Jesus would go to Egypt. It isn't that. Rather, Jesus is doing the things that Israel did. Israel did all these various things, including going down to Egypt, and now Jesus is doing all the very same things, but he's doing them the proper way because he's the true Israel. And Matthew is simply just saying, hey, Israel did it, and now Jesus is doing it. Think about this. Hopefully I'll convince you of this point before we get too far. Jacob was called Israel. He had 12 sons. They ended up becoming 12 tribes. But one of those sons was called Joseph. Joseph had dreams. As a result of dreams, Joseph ended up in Egypt. Jesus has a father. His name is Joseph. Joseph has a dream. As a result of the dream, he ends up in Egypt. You see those two similarities? Oh, this is exactly the same. But it goes on. In fact, it goes on through the entire book of Matthew. It's almost like Matthew has decided to prove to you thoroughly that Jesus is Israel. The nation of Israel is like that. But Jesus is like that. It's the same thing, but one's the true one. And so as you go through the book of Matthew, people like you and me, we don't kind of see it because we're just reading it in English like a few thousand years later. But Jewish people who knew their prophets they're saying, Jesus is Israel. It's like standing out to them like a giant sign. And I think the Hosea quote is, a, in fact, it, it starts before the Hosea quote. It starts with the very first two words in the Gospel of Matthew, which say in, in Greek, Biblos Genesis. Now, that's the strangest thing of all because it's like the first book in the Bible is the book of Genesis and the first two words in the book of Matthew are Biblos Genesis. It's almost like Matthew is saying, we've got the Bible, we've got the whole history of Israel and now we're going to start with Jesus. And right at the beginning of the book of Genesis is a giant big genealogy of all these people from Abraham and Adam all the way through and right at the start of Matthew, guess what? 
start with a big old genealogy and we go all the way through to Jesus. It's like it's copying everything that happened to Israel. It's all, being, it's all happening in the life of Jesus, except there's a big difference. It's not exactly the same. So the Israelites are down in Egypt. Sorry if you don't know your Bible well. I'm assuming a certain level of Bible knowledge this morning. So the Israelites go down to Egypt. They're in slavery, but God graciously brings them out. And they go through the Red Sea. They go through the waters, you know, the Red Sea miracle. And then they're in the desert for 40 years. And in the desert for 40 years, they fail miserably. There's a story, it's in Exodus 15 and 16, where they go for three days, there's no food or water, and what do they all do? Now, three days without water, that's... I'd probably be a grumbler and complainer, I admit. But they grumbled and complained, and that was a test. They failed it. So then the Lord provided what they needed, but they didn't trust him. They grumbled and complained. Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, Goes out into the desert where he's tested for how long? 40 days. Except now he doesn't go without food and water for, he doesn't go, he, I'm pretty sure he drinks. I'm trying to remember the story to be precise. I, I think it's only food he goes without, but it's 40 days, not three. But does he grumble and does he complain? No, he doesn't. And to boot, the devil turns up and offers him food for free. And he still says no. So he passes the test. So on one hand, we've got all these Old Testament stories of Israel, but then we've got the true Israel, Jesus. And so it goes on like that. Um, the Israelites, they go into the promised land and um, they, con they, they start this process of conquering the land. What does Jesus do? He chooses 12 disciples. Remember Jacob had 12 sons? Jesus chooses 12 disciples and he starts about a process of, you could say, conquering the land. He goes from town to town to town and everywhere he goes, he preaches and he heals people and he says, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's, Jesus is the real thing, but the nation of Israel is like a giant illustration to point to the real thing. Jesus is the true Israel, but Israel's still real. You know, it's, it's real, but Jesus is the true real, if you know what I'm trying to say. And then Israel, because they didn't follow the Lord's commands properly, the Lord was cranky with them, and they got sent into exile in Babylon, and they were there, and they learned some lessons, and they came back, a humbled version of themselves, but Jesus, he goes to the cross and he gets exiled, but he comes back in glory. And he, <laughs> everything Israel does, Jesus is that, but he's the proper version of it. And so if you know your Old Testament stories, you can go through the book of Matthew and you can line them all up. Moses goes up the mountain and he gets the law of the Lord, which is the Ten Commandments, Jesus goes up the mountain, the Mount of Olives, and he preaches the beatitude, he preaches the new law. He says, this is what it was said to you, but I say this. Over, like there's so many things in the book of Matthew 
where Jesus just does it better. In fact, because Jesus is the real thing. He's the authentic Israel. He's the true Israel. So the reason we, we don't say that Israel is the false Israel, it's still real. So when we say Jesus is the true one, we're not saying the other one's a false one. That's not the case at all. It's more like the Israel that we've read about in the Old Testament is real. And everything God did in it is real. It's wonderful. The prophets had the real word of God. The law was the real law of God. Everything was real, but Jesus is more real. <laughs> I don't know. I've often said that there's a, a more real real. You know, I've often said that to you when you read the New Testament and you see things that Jesus says and does and you say, you can understand it at a human level or you can understand it as a more real real. Well, everything that Jesus does is a more real real. In fact, it's the real real. <laughs> Just to give you a bit of confusion. All right. So, Jesus is the true Israel. But there are other examples of this type of thing. There, there, are, there are other ways that we can look at this as well in the Bible. So let's go back to Hosea again. One of our favourite people. <laughs> and let's read from Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. Hosea writes, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought, fruit for, he brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars and his land prospered. He adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. So Israel is described here as a, a vine. You can go to Isaiah chapter 5, and there's a whole parable called the parable of the vine. That's all about Israel. Jeremiah also talks about a vine, and so does Ezekiel. All the prophets have this reference to Israel being a vine. But now let's go to John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and Jesus says... Is it up there yet? It is. It's appearing for you. And Oh, there it is. It's slow up there. Jesus says, I am the true vine. <laughs> Israel's a vine, Jesus is the true vine. We've got Israel, and then we have the true Israel. We have a vine, we have the true vine. And Jesus says, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So there were parts of ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, that were not that fruitful. What did he do? Trimmed them off so that it could be more fruitful. So you look at the first time the Lord got cranky with Israel, the first big time, he sent them off to Babylon. And you know, their struggle was always worshipping other idols. Oh, the prophets over and over and over, you know, stop worshipping this, stop worshipping that, return to me. It's almost like you get sick of hearing the same message. Because we read the Bible, it's like so many chapters in a row seem to be saying the same thing. Stop worshipping false gods. By the time they come back from Babylon, it was not a thing. They never worshipped another idol. The Lord sorted it out. But they had other problems. <laughs> and so then Jesus came to sort out other problems. But you can see that every time there'd be a bit of pruning, it would result in greater fruitfulness. 
So then there's a lot of different ways of looking at this and we're not going to look at them all. But then we get to Isaiah and there's about 15 or 16 entire chapters. From This is from chapter 40 through to chapter 55 where the theme of a servant comes up over and over and over and over again. So here's one little snippet from Isaiah 41 to just give you an illustration. But you, Israel, my servant. Now, over and over and over, Israel is called the servant. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners. I called you, I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Over and over and over again, there's this reference to Israel as a servant. And there's a big old discussion about who exactly is this servant. Now, I know this because I studied the book of Isaiah in college. We, um, I mean, anyone can study any book of the Bible anytime you want, but when you're going through Bible college, you don't have time to study. You study every book in the Bible in kind of a general way. They call that Old Testament overview and New Testament overview. But then you often get to pick a few books that you study in detail. Isaiah was one of the ones I studied in detail, and um, we studied these servant passages. And they were asking us the question, in a, we had to do what they call exegesis, where you try to find the, you know, what did the original author intend when they wrote these things? You know, that's the question they're always putting to you. And, um, you know, that's a good question, but sometimes the original author, like Isaiah, didn't know everything they were saying because the Holy Spirit was saying it, so sometimes there were more going on than what they thought. And um, so, but the question they put to us was, who is this servant? And so sometimes you'd read a passage like Isaiah 41 and you'd say, oh, I think Israel is the nation of Israel undoubtedly. But then other times you'd read something like this in Isaiah 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. So the servant that's there is very clearly Jesus. He's the one disfigured beyond any man. He's the one who, you know, he will he sprinkled many nations. His blood was what enabled the Gentiles, that's the nations, to come into the kingdom of God. So as you're going through these Isaiah passages as a Bible college student, or anyone really, and you're looking to see who is the servant, sometimes it looks like the nation of Israel, but sometimes it looks like Jesus. Well, it, it, it's Jesus. <laughs> because whatever the nation of Israel did, that's what Jesus did. And if you're Jewish and you don't know the Lord... You can, you can get quite confused by some of these passages, especially Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 so wonderfully matches the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and, you know, the man of sorrows and all of that. And, you know, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and didn't open his mouth. All of that's in Isaiah. 
Jewish people, some of them just, I have heard that in certain synagogues they don't read that chapter. You know that there's a system for reading chapters of the Bible? I've heard that in some synagogues they skip Isaiah 53 because it makes everyone think about Jesus. So Jesus is so clearly there. So who is the servant? Is it Israel? Or is it Jesus? Well, it's Jesus, but it's because he's the true servant. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus is the true servant. So we really want to be in Jesus. Because when you're in Jesus, what are you in? You're in Israel. I talked about this. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. Remember in Romans chapter 9, we said that you become a part of Israel through the promise or through faith. Abraham has two children. One child he has, this is Ishmael, through the normal method of having children. You try for it, you have one. The other child he could not have no matter how hard he tried, but he got that child through believing. You will become, and Paul went on to say that those who are Israel are those who have become a part of Abraham or become the child of Abraham through, not by trying, but through believing. So it had nothing to do with your ethnicity and it had nothing to do with whether you became Jewish or not. It was to do with your faith. And in John chapter 15, which we put up on the screen just not very long ago, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. You'll bear fruit if you remain in me. So if you are in the vine, then you're a part of this true vine. In other words, you're a part of the true Israel and you'll bear fruit. So Israel in the Old Testament, it turns out is what we call a shadow and Jesus is what we call the type or the fulfillment of the shadow. It's like when someone's standing here and you shine a light on them, there's a shadow on the ground and you look at the shadow and if you didn't know anything about the real thing, you could look at the shadow and get a bit of an idea of what the real thing was like. You could see the shape of it. You could get an idea of the size maybe. But then you get the real thing and you don't need the shadow anymore because you've got the real thing. When I was in um, Mount Morgan High School as a school chaplain, one of the things we did with kids was play Monopoly. There were some students there in grade eight and nine who hadn't learned to read and write properly. And so instead of, and one of the problems they had was they didn't, they didn't really know how to handle money. They weren't good at maths. They couldn't read and write. So they would play Monopoly games with these students to try to give them a sense of um, the real world buying, selling, and I remember the maths teacher saying to this student one day, she was the banker, the maths student was the banker, and this student, a uh, young man, a young boy, grade eight or grade nine, she said to him, when you buy a property, I'm gonna give you the wrong change sometimes. So he was paranoid because he didn't know how to tell if he'd been given the right change or not. So, um, you know, I was a school chaplain, I'm in the room, and he looked at me like, do I have the right change? <laughs> so 
So I'm not help, I'm not allowed to help you. you know, you've got to learn the lesson. It's that poor kid. So the money was was very the monopoly money in the game was very real for that boy and very necessary for that boy to help him for things that were to come. But it would have had no meaning at all if there actually wasn't money in real life. If there wasn't actual money in real life and we didn't go and have to buy anything in real life, if we just were a hunter-gatherer society like you know thousands of years ago and we just caught our own food, the monopoly money wouldn't mean a thing. But it meant something in the maths lesson because money's real and this, rep this represented something that was real and it helped, hopefully, that boy to learn and to prepare him for what was ahead. This, the whole Old Testament points us to Jesus and its whole entire goal is to help us to love him and to see him and to follow him. And it's whole, and, and you know what? Wherever Paul would travel around the world and he would start preaching Christ as the true Israel, some would get it like that. And instantly a church would start. And they would be a strong church from day one because they, was, they had already been taught everything in the Old Testament. They already knew all the shadows and now they saw the real thing and they were off and running. But some people didn't believe. They just couldn't see it. And today in the world, there are still a lot of people that can't see it. Sadly. Because they're looking at the shadow and they're thinking the shadow's the real thing. But no, there's a real thing. And so when Jesus came as Messiah, they all had interpreted prophecies to think that Messiah was going to be a king that would sit on an actual throne in Jerusalem and it would be like the time of King David, but all over again, but greater. So they had interpreted the shadows as just another real thing, the same as the shadow. But Jesus is like saying things like, he says to Pilate, Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus is saying, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. No, no one seemed to get it. So there's a whole heap of people that just missed the boat because they were looking at the shadows and not at the reality. And Christians do it today too. Now, fortunately, we, we realise Jesus is the real thing, but we still look at shadows. We get... We, we, make, we confuse ourselves. And so there are actually, all around the world, there are Christians that are like believing that Jesus is going to return and he's going to sit on an actual throne in Jerusalem and rule an actual kingdom physically for a thousand years. And uh, this is, um, I think it's just confusing the symbols of the Old Testament. Jesus is a king now. You're not coming in the future to be a king. He's a king now. And he's sitting on a throne now. He's sitting, next to, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven now. And the Bible says he went into glory and inherited his kingdom now. There's a kingdom now. When John the Baptist came, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A hand means it's basically here. It's, it's like about to hit. And when Jesus came, well, he's the king. 
Uh, like to me, it can't be any clearer than that. We're not waiting for some magical third temple to be rebuilt and for Judaism to get rebooted. And to, as far as I'm concerned, all of that is highly insulting to the Lord. I can't think of anything more insulting than to say, Jesus' sacrifice isn't good enough, let's have some animals sacrificed again. That's just about the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. But there are Christians all around the world that it's this well-meaning Christians, but they're looking at the shadows and getting all confused, not looking at the real thing, Jesus. Go and read the book of Hebrews. It says it so plainly, we don't need any of that stuff before we've got Jesus. <laughs> if you've got Jesus, you've got everything. You don't need any of that stuff. Thank God. Thank God I don't have to travel three times a year to Israel for Passover, for Pentecost, and for tabernacles. I don't want to live in a tent in the Middle East a whole week of my life every year. No, all of those things were just shadows to point to the, all the real stuff that is Jesus. Thank God. Getting all my notes in the wrong order. All right. Who wants the play money? Actually, it's just photocopied play money. <laughs> so, I forgot to get my, my Monopoly money this morning. I had to print it out. So if, you, if anyone wants the... Oh, all right. Have you... All right. Give me some money. Okay, off you go. <laughs> I'm not offering it to anyone. This is lunch today. Um, but we all want the real thing, right? The play money is real. You can hold it in your hands. You can teach lessons with it. You can learn things. You can play games with it. You can have a lot of fun with it. You can spend a lot of hours with that play money. We all do. It's real. But Jesus is the real, real. Israel in the Middle East is a country. That's it. But within Israel are people of faith. Some of them are true Israel. Within Palestine, there are also people of faith. Some of them are true Israel. Within Australia, there are people of faith. Some of them are true Israel. Jesus is true Israel, but because we are in Christ, we are a part of the true Israel. Israel. And here in this room today is Israel. What an amazing thing that is. All the promises of Israel, they're ours. I think it's just unbelievable. You are the chosen people. Now, if you, that suddenly sounds not quite right, go to Peter. Second, I think it's the second letter of Peter. And he says, for you are a chosen people, a holy priesthood, people devoted to God. That's you, the church. 
So don't get your Israels confused. Okay? <laughs> uh, not up here, sorry. He's hoping for more money. We're going to close with a scripture and a prayer and a very quick encouragement. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. In other words, neither being Jewish or not being Jewish means nothing. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, the Israel, to the Israel of God. That's us. So what to do? Remain in Christ. That's where you will be fruitful. Be in the vine. Be a person of prayer. Show hospitality to people around you. People who are kind to you and people who are not kind to you. Love your enemies. Talk of Christ to others so that they will know him too. And read the Bible and look for Jesus because he's everywhere, even in the Old Testament. Lord, I thank you that you are the true vine. You are the true Israel. And more than that, I thank you that we've been included in Christ. Lord, I can't think of anything more wonderful. And I pray, my prayer would be for the congregation here at Peace and for all who are part of the congregation online with us in various places. And Lord, for the whole body of Christ in the city of Rockhampton and for those who've gone out for us, from us to places like Blackall and Oakey and Adelaide and Mount Morgan and other places, Lord, all of these people, Lord, make us fruitful. Lord, I pray that we would bear fruit for Christ and I pray to help us to think clearly about Israel in the world today and in the Bible and help us to be examples of what you have done and a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.